In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the fourth Sunday of Lent, the season when we prepare for the Paschal Feast, for the celebration of Easter, for the Passover. Passover, or Pascha, or as we say in English, Easter, is that celebration of uh, the Lord's when he brings the people out of Egypt, out of slavery and death, when he protects them from the angel of death that comes over them, and when he uh, renews in them that spirit of freedom. And this is the celebration that we are preparing for. We are preparing for the Passover feast. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, and we are preparing to keep that feast. So in order to do that, we have to recognize the truth and the reality of the angel of death. We have to recognize the fact that in our sin, we are uh, suffering the consequences of death, and that we have to prepare for the Lord uh, to save us from this real uh, and potent threat. And so to do that, we have to join with the ancient nation of Israel, with our Lord in the wilderness, for those 40 days when we uh, come to understand what it is that we're being saved from. The nation of Israel, if you'll remember, have been brought out of Egypt. Moses has led them out. You remember they've spent now 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses dies uh, seeing into the promised land, but not able to bring the people in. It's his right-hand man, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, who brings the people from the wilderness of sin through the baptism of the Jordan River and into the promised land. You remember that Joshua is one of those two faithful spies that go into the promised land at the beginning of Exodus, Joshua and Caleb, and they say, be bold nation of Israel and go in and take uh, this land. And so Joshua is now able to uh, enjoy the benefits of the promised land. Only he and Caleb from that first generation are left. And so now he has the, the honor and the privilege to lead the people in and to lead them to war. So now as they prepare to celebrate their first Passover in the promised land, as they prepare to take up arms and to fight uh, those uh, nations that are inhabiting the promised land, the Lord stops them and uh, circumcises the men. Now, this is really bad military strategy, right? The one thing that you don't want to do to your men in arms right before they go into battle is to circumcise them, right? Here they are in a rock's throwing distance from these uh, battle-hardened nations and the Lord uh, injures them, right? So that they have to sit and to heal. But this is for the Lord to show that it's not by their strength that they're going to take the land. It's not due to their prowess at arms. It is the Lord who has melted their heart by His strength, by His right hand. He has melted the heart of the Amalekites and the Canaanites and all those who dwell in the land. They're afraid of God. And so He is able to have them uh, there and to circumcise them in that moment just before battle. Now remember what the circumcision is. The circumcision is the sign of the covenant between Abram and the Lord. It is when Abram uh, circumcises himself and his sons that he takes the name Abraham. This is a sign of the promise between he and God. And what is this? We want to make it very clear that this is not the Lord uh, somehow condemning the flesh. 
We are not a, a faith that thinks that flesh is bad and spirit is good. There are lots of world philosophies and religions that teach that the flesh is bad, and uh, Christianity and ancient Judaism are not those. The body and the soul and the mind are one. The human person is one integrated whole. We can talk about these parts, but they are part of one integrated whole. The circumcision is a sign that the flesh is not in charge. The flesh has desires, it has instincts, it has impulses that sometimes we can barely control. Our fight or flight response is this natural instinct uh, that is very difficult to suppress. What the Lord is teaching the people of Israel is that our job is to put the flesh under the submission of the will which is united to God. In baptism, through the power of the Holy Spirit, our wills are called to be united to God's will. We are supposed to be united with Him through our faculty of reason, which elevates us above the animals who act by instinct. And it is by that unity of our spirit and mind with God's that we are able to put the flesh in submission so that we can follow the will of God and we can live in righteousness. And so this is the message of circumcision. Right, warning us and teaching us to uh, control our impulses and to follow the righteousness of God. Sadly, this is what the story of the lost son is about. About a son who is not circumcised in his heart, who is not circumcised in his will, and is following the impulses of his flesh. Jesus tells this third of the lost parables where the lost son goes to his father and he commits a sin that on the surface of it is incredibly shocking. What does the lost son do? He goes to his father and he says, Give me the portion that is due me. In saying that, in going to his father and saying, Give me the portion of my inheritance that is due me, is like saying, I can't wait for you to die. The inheritance comes to the son upon the father's death. When the son comes and says, I can't wait for you to die, I want my portion now, it's willing his father's own death. It's saying, I would rather have you dead and out of the way than have to wait in order to fulfill the impulses of my flesh, my desire for reckless living. Besides that, inheritance in the ancient world is much more difficult to bestow on a son than it is in our modern era where cash is so readily available. In the ancient world, cash was at a premium. There were very few coins. There was very little capital to be had. The majority, the vast majority of wealth was in property and in possessions. We have to remember that the property that a good Jewish father would have had been given and, and had been portioned out by Joshua as they entered the promised land. So first and foremost, it's given by God to them in tribes. The land that he had also would be belonging to a family that would have held it for generation after generation. And any hope of expanding upon that land or preserving it would have been a slow and, uh, and meticulous process of, of saving and working over generations to uh, increase that apportionment. To give up a portion of that land would again take generations to regain. It's not like one person in their lifetime could earn enough capital to go out and buy uh, many more portions of land were it available. So the, to, to break this property in half or in thirds would have caused a generational change in the prospects of this family. 
So now the lost son is not only said, I want you to die and get out of the way, but I'm willing to sacrifice the future of our entire family to get what I want. And that is what we do in sin when we walk away from the will of God. We sacrifice ourselves and our family, and we wish that our father would simply get away. And of course, he falls into reckless living because this is where his impulses lead him. And he falls into the worst possible situation where he's with the Gentiles taking care of uh, the most um, kind of, of, of profane animal that a Jew could imagine. To not only be around pigs, but to be entrusted with feeding them and to not even be able to get the food that the profane animal is receiving. And then we read, that the son comes to himself. He says he's come to himself. What does this mean? This means that the son all the time knew right from wrong. He knew what he was doing. He knew what it was that he was supposed to do and how to live right. When he comes to himself, he's recognizing, I have sinned against my father and against his house. And he recognizes that even the lowest servant in his father's house is being treated and is being cared for better than those who are the princes of the Gentiles. He recognizes the goodness and the beneficence and the provision of his father's house. He recognizes the safety that he'd once enjoyed and the benefits of sitting at his father's table. And he comes to realize what it was that he had really given up in the impulses, the devices and desires of his heart. And so what does he devise? He devises a simple response that the church likes to call repentance. I was going this way. I need to go this way. That's what it is. Repentance is to say, I was going this way. Now I need to go this way. And he recognizes that he needs to return to his father's house and to his father's way of living. And he's willing to give up any kind of honor, any kind of dignity that he might have one time enjoyed and to become a servant in that house. For he knows that even a servant in his father's house is better treated than a prince among the Gentiles. And so he goes with a heart of repentance to meet his father. Now we get the remarkable part of the story. The remarkable part of the story is that the father had been waiting to forgive and welcome back the son. Not only waiting, but had been searching and yearning for the lost son to return. He is looking afar off, and while afar off, the father notices the lost son and rejoices and does a shocking thing. He runs. There is nothing more undignified in the ancient Near East than for a man of property and position to run. It's something that children do and that servants do. A man of property and position would never run and definitely not run in front of his neighbors. But this man is willing out of his love for his son to run in front of his neighbors to give up any dignity and pride and power and position that he once might have held to go and to find his lost son. And this is what Jesus does for us. He gives up all of his glory, all of his power, all of his position, all of the dignity that he has in heaven and allows himself to be ridiculed by all those who are his neighbor, to be spit upon and to be defiled. He takes sin upon us, he who knew no sin. 
And so he acts as this father and giving up all dignity out of his love for his lost son. He greets him and he restores him as we do in the absolution of the church to say your sins are as far from you as the east is from the west. You can be restored in your place and position in your father's house. You can be restored to his table to eat at his food, to drink his wine and to receive the benefits of living with him. And then we have the older son who, not shockingly, doesn't get it because he's mad. He's mad and he's holding a grudge against the younger son. And who can blame him? We spend a lot of time, don't we, pointing out the wrongs of others and look at how they're messing up and look at how stupid they are and look at how foolish they are and aren't they getting what they deserve? And that's all the older son does. He says, look at how he's messed up our life. Look at how he's, he's ridiculed you. Look at the way he's made you look in front of our family. And you want me to celebrate when this guy comes crawling back? And yet, that's exactly what salvation means. That's exactly what our participation in Christ involves. St. Paul shows us in three sequences in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 how our being justified, our being saved, demands and entails and involves our participating in the salvation of those who have been lost. What does he say? He says, first off, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has been made new. What does that making new look like? It means that we've been reconciled to God. Reconciliation is a bookkeeping term. It's a term that bookkeepers use to say we had a line of debts and then the debt was paid and now the book is balanced. And so Christ has seen the debt that we have in sin he has paid that debt with his own life and he is saying the book is closed. Your debts are gone. They are paid. You're free. And now that we have been reconciled, now that our debts have been paid, he says he has given us, so in being reconciled, he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. So each of us in the church whose debts have been paid, who have been reconciled, have been given ministry. So if anyone asks, any of us, do you have a ministry in the church? Our response, the necessity of our response has to be, yes, I have the ministry of reconciliation. I have the ministry of like the father of the lost son to go to the brow of the hill to be looking for those who may be willing to return to God in his righteousness that is our ministry to have our hearts broken to be willing to uh, lay down our own pride and arrogance in order to embarrass ourselves around our neighbors to go and seek and find those who are lost that is our our ministry because we have been reconciled. And notice that first, He has reconciled us. And He has given us this ministry. 
Then in verse 19, he says, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. So he's not only saving individuals, he is reconciling the world. He is bringing the whole of creation now. He's making the whole of creation new. And he says uh, this in this um, continuous tense, right? That he, he is doing this. So this is now a process. He has done it, and he is doing it. He is reconciling the whole world to himself. And the consequence of that is that he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So now we have a ministry, and we have a message. A message is something that we have to hold on to and keep safe. Right? If we are good agents of God, if we are good sons and daughters of the Most High, right? In my family, when somebody would call the house and I would have to take a message, I had to keep the message in a special place, right? Because my mother would come home and say, Where's the message that you took? Right? I had to know where it was. I had to put it in a special place. I had to have it. I had to be able to accurately recall what was said, right? That was my job. A message had been entrusted to me. The message has been entrusted to us. It's not something that we can just throw away. It's not a slip of paper we can just put into a pocket. This is a message that has been given to the world. And so it's been given to us to bestow to the world. So now that He is reconciling us, we have been given the message of reconciliation. What? That Christ came to save sinners. That your sins can be removed. That your Heavenly Father loves you. That He's going to the brow of the hill. That He's willing to embarrass Himself for you. That He's willing to do everything He can to bring you back into righteousness and righteous living. So he says, therefore you are ambassadors of Christ. So we are amba ambassadors with a ministry and a message of reconciliation. That is who we are when we leave this church today. When we step out those doors and we go into the parking lot, we are not going as simple citizens of this town. We are leaving as ambassadors to Christ. When we go to our homes, when we go to the market, when we go to our workplaces, when we go to school, wherever it is that we go, we are going as ambassadors of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ambassadors with a ministry and a message of God's reconciliation, of His love for mankind. And we are making an appeal. The appeal in our lives as ambassadors is to say what? To say, I, like the lost son came to myself. I realized that in reckless living and impulsivity, not having my heart and mind circumcised, I had fallen into, into living that was, that was derelict and that was uh, uh, full of the consequences of sin. And willing to repent, my Father has loved me and has restored me. And He will restore you as well. And then finally, He implores the Corinthians... He implores the Corinthians, wait a minute, aren't they saved? What's he imploring them for? Haven't they been reconciled? They have been saved. They are being saved. They will be saved. He is imploring them now to enter in with him into this ministry. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Wait a minute, you mean it's not done? You mean I don't have to repent anymore? You mean this process of being justified and being saved isn't done? No, it's not. 
You mean I still need to learn how to be an ambassador? I still need to, to, to humble myself to become the righteousness of God? Yes, I do. We implore you, be reconciled. For our sake, he who knew no sin has become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How crazy is that? Us? The righteousness of God? He's going to make us His righteousness? He's going to restore and sanctify us to the place that we might be recognized as the righteousness of God? That is radical. That is incredible. It is amazing. And it is full of hope and love. The new year has come. The moon is about to become new again. And the season of Passover is upon us. The angel of death is on the march. And the temptation of the evil one is in full force. Will we prepare and receive the Passover lamb who was once slain that his blood may cover us so that we may respond to the call of the lost and we may be reunited with our Father in heaven and sit at his holy banqueting place as his ambassadors and as his righteousness that we may celebrate with him over those who were once lost and have been found.